Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for spending some time with us today. One brief housekeeping note before we begin, check out our video interview series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with historians, journalists, Middle East experts, even an astronaut and an NFL player. Watch our latest content by subscribing to the Benebrith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at Benebrith International. Well, Frank Sinatra earned his nickname Chairman of the Board by balancing his huge success as a singer and as an actor. But few know how Sinatra first rose to stardom. To understand his rise, we need to look at Canadian pianist and legendary songwriter Ruth Lowe, who out of pure grief from losing her husband within a year of getting married, wrote I'll Never Smile Again in 1940. This turned out to be Sinatra's first big hit, and it ignited what turned out to be arguably one of the 20th century's greatest singing careers. But few realize Lowe's impact on the music industry, not just by breaking barriers as one of the first Jewish women in a typically male-dominated industry, but as one of the architects of the American ballad. Joining me to help explore Ruth Lowe's astonishing life and extraordinary musical contributions are Peter Jennings and Lowe's son, photographer Tom Sandler, co-authors of the new biography about Lowe, Until I Smile at You. A well-known writer, Peter Jennings has written several books, including the widely acclaimed Shark Assault, An Amazing Story of Survival. Tom Sandler is a Toronto-based photographer who regularly photographs international celebrities and politicians like Margaret Thatcher, Nelson Mandela, Prince Edward and his wife Sophie, and the Rolling Stones. Peter, Tom, wonderful to have both of you on the show today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you. I appreciate it. Yes, th so, thank you so much. It's great to be here, Dan. Thank you. So the first question really is, is for both of you. Um, how did you come to write a book about Ruth Lowe? Peter, you start. All right, I'll take that. Um, funnily enough, I was uh, in, in the village where I lived at the time. I was doing a fundraiser, Dan, for our local health unit. And this was in 2015. It was the 100th anniversary of the birth of Frank Sinatra. And so I decided to uh, base the fundraiser around that. And I got a number of musicians who donated their time in a cellar crowd of over 500 people. And uh, the idea was we were going to entertain these people. Well, shortly before the, uh, the date, somebody said, uh, you should talk to Tom Sandler. I said, well, who the heck's Tom Sandler? Ruth Lowe's son. I had no idea she had a son. And turns out Tom is uh, a very well-known photographer, as you were saying, Dan, in Toronto. Long story short, I got in touch with Dan, sorry, with uh, Tom. We met, we became friends. And Tom agreed to not only uh, appear at this uh, event, but I got him to sing his mother's song. Well, he, he is a singer, he's a folk singer, but he'd never sung the song before. He was a rock singer. 
but he got the only standing over the evening. And uh, so that's how we met. And then that evening, Tommy came up to, by the way, he's, he, a friend of his called him Tommy because his name, his mom named him after Tommy Dorsey, which is pretty cool. Anyway, Tommy came up to me and said, you're writing the book. And I said, what book? He said, I've always wanted to get a book written about my mom. You're a fine writer. You know her music. You know the music of the era. You're writing the book. And uh, I wasn't about to turn that down. It was an awful show. Well, Tom, tell us, um, this must have been, this I must have, this idea must have been germinating for a while uh, to, to want to tell your mother's story. So tell us uh, what was going on with you over the years as you thought about uh, this possibility. Well, you're right. Um, uh, I knew it was, uh, it was always an exciting story to me. My mom was a wonderful person to be around and very gifted, talented, but more uh, personally, she was just a great person to hang with and a lovely uh, woman. And um, But what she did was so outstanding and was so enormous that I think uh, I felt for quite a while that um, the story has to be shared and has to be known. Uh, this was a groundbreaking accomplishment she, that she did as a woman and as a Jewish woman in the late 1930s. Uh, and the tragedies that she had to overcome and the way in which she overcame them were so incredible that um, it was important to have this story as an inspiration. And, and you said earlier, like as a, a role model for people. Um, so basically uh, that was what I was thinking. And then she passed away very, unfortunately, very young uh, when she was only 66. And that was in 1980. So uh, that uh, there was sort of like there was things that had to be done to finish her life properly, to complete the, the journey that she was on. So uh, I just sort of decided I would just take it on and do it. And uh, it seemed to be the right thing to do. It certainly was the right thing to do. Well, I want to talk uh, more about uh, Ruth, uh, the person, um, and, and uh, more about, about her life. Uh, but first, I, let's, uh, both of you, help uh, set the stage for us for the entry of Ruth Lowe and uh, the fledgling uh, so-called boy singer Frank Sinatra in 1938. The, the era in, in which they lived, uh, musically, was dominated by, by the music and concerts on the road and uh, radio broadcasts of the big bands. Uh, and for our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with this type of music since the uh, time has, has passed, um, or familiar with the, um, the artists and the style of, of the performers, tell us a little bit about the big band era and the unique sound uh, of that time and um, oh, the way the songs were arranged, what was it that, that set it apart? Uh, Peter. Dan, uh, I can tell you that the, the real driver here was to get people out on the dance floor. It was not so much to sit back and listen to songs, it was to get people dancing. So whether it was Count Basie or Tommy Dorsey or Glenn Miller or Jimmy Lunsford or on, on there are a number of bands who toured across America and up into Canada, and they uh, they would perform typically one night gigs. And uh, getting people out in the dance floor was what it was all about. The um, the anomaly here, of course, was when Tommy Dorsey 
uh, hired Frank Sinatra okay. and put him into a studio in New York and recorded Don Little Swell again, that suddenly changed everything dramatically because people wouldn't dance to that. They would stand and watch Sinatra, watch the Pied Pipers who he sang with, the vocal group, and listen to this um, amazing song. So everything kind of changed overnight as a result of Ruth Lowe's song. And, and by the way, Dan, you mentioned earlier, uh, I can think of only Dorothy Fields, the one other female who was working in those days. Tin Pan Alley was a male-dominated bastion, and uh, Ruth and Dorothy Fields were the only females in the game. So they, they changed things, too. You know, at first glance, it, it appears, as you look back, that people of talent, uh, no matter their race, uh, religion, uh, are remembered for contributions to the big band era. And uh, it, was a, it was a great melting pot uh, of, of Americans, of American musicians. So no matter where they came from, they came from all over the United States. Um, and there were, of course, a, a number of Jews, Benny Goodman and his orchestra and his band. Um, Artie Shaw, uh, but of course there were many others, and African Americans, uh, you know, Duke Ellington and Count Basie, we could go on. Uh, it was um, a really uh, uh, an era of, um, not of musical experimentation so much as it was uh, a, an era of musical celebration, uh, because there were, there were so many of these, of these bands. But now, let's go back to gender. You mentioned Dorothy Fields uh, and uh, Ruth Lowe uh, in terms of women. Uh, who were who are writing songs? Let's let's talk about women. Were they playing in these bands? Were they leading the bands? I think Ruth, at a certain point, led an all woman band. So, Tom, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> yeah, knowing my she really didn't lead the band, but knowing my mom and her personality, she probably took over leading the band. But um, you're right; um, she did work. Uh, her first her first gig was actually demonstrating music in a little uh, uh, songs store in Toronto. And uh, her father, my grandfather, passed away when my mom was only a teenager, and she became the sole support of her family, and uh, got a job as a, demonstrating music in, when people come in to buy records or sheet music. Um, and one night, uh, there was a very famous all-women's jazz orchestra in the big, during the big bands, the Ina Ray Hutton uh, Orchestra, Ina Ray Hutton and the Melodiers. And she, they came to Toronto to play, and um, the piano player couldn't make the gig for one reason or another. So Ina was looking for a woman who could play jazz and ballads and uh, was pretty glamorous. And, um, and she said if she was blonde, it would be an asset, uh, which happened to be <laughs> what my mom was. And she hooked up uh, and they, they just clicked. And my mom was very gifted and personality was very terrific. So Ina Ray ended up hiring her uh, full time as her, one of her piano players. She had, it was an 18 piece all women's jazz band that traveled all over the States. I don't think there was another one. I that may, Peter may correct me, but I think that may have been the only one during that time. But they, um, they, the inspiration for the movie Some Like It Hot, if you remember, was an all-woman's jazz band. And that was the Ina Ray Hutton Orchestra. And that was the actual inspiration for the movie Some Like It Hot, was the band that my mom, my mom played in. She also had a, a trio, uh, I, I think before that, called The, the Shadows, which uh, two of her good friends were in. And they, they performed and sang and played. 
But her, her real big break came uh, with Ina Ray Hutton and traveling with the All Women's Jazz Orchestra. Well, tell us uh, a little about uh, Ruth's early life. Uh, did she come from a, a musical family? Well, I didn't know my grandfather because I said he, he passed away very young um, before I was born. But he played, he liked to, he was kind of a lively person. And uh, my Aunt Mickey and my mom used to tell me that he used to love to play and sing um, songs like, you know, Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey, upbeat kind of fun stuff, roll up the carpet at home. But he wasn't a professional musician, but there were a lot of musicians in my mom's family that were in the symphony and places like that. Um, my mom grew up for a, a number of years before my grandfather passed away in California for I think it was about seven years and then moved back to Toronto. And there she took a couple of years of classical music training. She was quite a mechanic, my mom, on uh, scoring music, writing music. She was, she was really well-educated in it. But she just liked to be more of a free spirit and uh, invent. Was there a was there a piano in the in the living room? Many many Jewish homes yes. had a piano. Whether or not anybody could play, they made sure there was a piano because yes. they hoped somebody would play. We had it in our home. My sister, one of my sisters, is a pretty accomplished uh, uh, pianist, and there was that piano uh, right there in the. It yeah. dominated the living room. So yeah, it's true. And and the, the funny thing you mentioned that because when my grandfather moved the family back to Toronto from California. The, one of the only things that they actually took was the piano. And uh, it, it's, it's been a family member, you know, all these years. Um, I don't have that piano, but I have my mom's piano, which is a baby grand, which I'm sitting at right now. And that's been around since I was born, when I was born in 1950. So I've, she got that sometime in the 40s. Uh, and uh, you're right, uh, the piano has always been a staple in, uh, in, our, in our home, for sure. And it's a beautiful piano, it's yellow. <laughs> so Peter, what, what musical genres influenced her? So where she, she's growing up in the, or getting in the 20s and into the 30s. Uh, what, what, what were the inputs into her? In, in, that made up her, her musical uh, worldview? Well, again, it was, uh, it was an era of radio, and uh, the big bands were dominating on, uh, on radio stations. So that's what, uh, that's what Ruth would have been listening to. Um, the big band music, the standards, Tim Pan Alley, all that sort of thing. 90% um, of which, of course, were written by Jewish people, as you've already indicated, Dan. It was... Uh, very much a Jewish enclave, and um, it was it was that kind of influence that uh, that already had um, instilled itself in Ruth, so that when Andre Hutton came, Ruth was ready to go. She had been playing that kind of music in the uh, store, as as Tom mentioned, and it obviously connected with her. She loved it, and. Um, when she went, went on to write, I'll never smile again. It was really out of that kind of upbringing. Well, tell us uh, about the circumstances uh, surrounding uh, the writing of I'll Never Smile Again. It's a, it's a touching story and uh, that it produced such a monumental work of actually not just music, but poetry, really. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start and then Tom? Yeah. Um, Dan, I, I think basically, and, and it's one of the reasons 
that I was very honored to write about Ruth. Her story is um, a very stirring account of tremendous courage. Uh, she overcame the grief of her beloved father dying when she was a teenager, as, as Tom mentioned. She had to quit school and go to work to bring some money into the house. Her mother was ailing and she had a younger sister, uh, Muriel, known as Mickey. And, and then she goes on the road, traveling across uh, North America in a band bus and with a bunch of crazy gals drinking and smoking. And, um, she, uh, She's sending money back home all the time to her mother and sister. And then in Chicago, she happens to be a very handsome song plugger by the name of Harold Cohen. And they fall madly in love, they get married, and they're looking forward to a wonderful life of blissful joy. But in the first year, Harold dies all of a sudden without warning uh, in a kidney operation, and Ruth is devastated. Her, the whole rug has been pulled out from under her. She's lost her father. Now she's lost her beloved husband. She returns home to Toronto, moves in with her mother and sister. And uh, her sister, Mickey, by the way, who died uh, just last year in the 100th year, uh, Tommy set me up with her to interview for the book. And she said to me one afternoon, she said, Ruthie came to me and said, Mickey, I'll just never smile again. And that night, apparently, the song poured out of her soul and words. And um, from there, uh, she was uh, working at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the uh, radio network. She managed to get the song to Percy Tate, who had uh, moved to the U.S., a big name. But he had a show on CBC. He um, played the song fell in love with it, gave Ruth an acetate version of it. She got that to somebody in Dorsey's band. Dorsey heard the song, he fell in love with it, and uh, the rest is history. It went from there. Tom, what did she tell you about this, about that about that time? Or the state of mind that she was in that, that produced uh, the song? You know, it, it's funny because she, she never really discussed um, that in, in any detail. I, I think that it was uh, it was so um, she was very protective, my mom. So I think that she was trying to sort of keep us as as little kids, you know, away from that um, trauma that she had experienced. Um, I, I knew about it, but there wasn't a really um, an emotional connection to it with my mom. But it was always there in my mom because I could feel it and I could sense it and see it in her music and when she played. And uh, you could see the depth of something that happened to her, the sorrow that was very, very deep and very painful. And, you know, it, it, she had really two in a row, you know, with my grandfather going in 1943 and then Harold going in, um, um, uh, sorry, 1932. Um, um, thir uh, thir and then Harold going in, you know, not that many years later, you know, tremendous tragedies. But she had her music and her music was like, a best friend to her and she was able to express herself and her feelings through that and uh, trust me when you heard her play it was powerful enough i didn't have to hear any words or any stories behind it it was that's enough <laughs> and you know dan i think it should be said ruth lowe was very resilient and very courageous she wasn't just a uh, you know shy quiet girl she, uh, she was going to go out and make something happen the Tommy Dorsey band 
the Dorsey brothers, I think until 1935, actually uh, performed together. Uh, I think uh, Tommy was a trombonist and I think Jimmy was a saxophonist, if I recall correctly. But there were there were so many bands. It was Harry James, it was Glenn Miller. And again, as we said before, so many big bands. But the, the, the best of the big bands really had uh, a unique sound and they had their their place. I guess you close your eyes and you hear their music, you, you kind of knew uh, which band it was. Um, so um, tell us a little about, uh, Peter, about uh, Tommy Dorsey and, and his band. And, and how did Ruth connect with, with Sinatra? How did, how did that connection happen? Sure. Well, um, Tommy Dorsey was known as the General Motors band business back then because uh, Mac, as his uh, nickname was, Mac knew how to make things happen. For instance, when Ruth wrote the song, I'll Never Smile Again, and when uh, Sinatra and Dorsey recorded it, and Dorsey was smart enough to say, this is going to become a big hit, he brings Ruth down to uh, New York, where she lives for the next almost two years, writing all sorts of songs, including Sinatra's uh, theme song, Put Your Dreams Away. Quite a funny story behind that one. But um, you're right, all the bands had their sound. And if you knew a lot about the bands, you could close your eyes and you would know Tommy Dorsey's sound was decidedly different from, uh, uh, say, Glenn Miller or Artie Shaw or any of the other big bands. So each of them had their, their own kind of song and style. Um, Ruth, when she realized that she might have something going for her when she let her smile again, she was able to get the acetate record that uh, uh, Percy Faith had given her, which Tom still has, by the way. Um, she was able to get that to the guitar player in Dorsey's band. The guitar player played it for the boss. He said, I like this song, let's do it. And shortly after that, he hired Sinatra. And in the spring of 1940, they went into the RCA studio in New York and record the song. And they went to number one on Billboard, where it stayed for 12 weeks. Was and it was the first number one. There was no Hot 100 at Billboard. They, they were just starting out. But it was the first number one on Billboard's then yeah, um, list of top hits. It was. I think it was July, July 27th, 1940. Yeah. And it and stayed there for 12 weeks. 12 weeks, which was unheard of. And the song has now been recorded by well over 150 people from around the world, including, by the way, in fact, I opened the book with uh, in studio with David Clayton Thomas, there from Blood, Sweat and Tears, who, who went into the studio to record his own unique version of uh, I'll Never Smile Again. And uh, as I say, we opened the book uh, until I smile at you with that scene. So it was, uh, yeah, quite something. Tom, did, did she talk about Sinatra? I mean, look, you know, when you think about it, Sinatra at that point is uh, 25 years old. Uh, he's, he's already um, a real heartthrob. A lot of this, I guess, was luck. I mean, it could have been any other singer. I mean, it was, he, he wasn't the only singer who was singing with big bands. Everybody had, had singers. They had groups like the Pied Pipers. There was, you had a full musical production when you would uh, watch or dance to the, the big bands. Um, did she talk about uh, Sinatra? I mean, there's a great picture of the two of them together. 
what what did she say about him at that stage of of his career? Well, uh, she didn't really talk about it that much. She told me about a couple of funny things that you know happened when she actually brought him back to the apartment with her one night. My aunt was there and. My aunt said, well, this good-looking guy, she brought this good-looking guy back in. I didn't think much of him, but it's, it turned out to be Frank Sinatra. So um, I know she hung out with them, uh, and they were um, they had a great respect for what well, he had a great respect for my mom as a writer. And I think it's like I, I said, she was just such a, a, a wonderful person and a friendly person that uh, I, I just think they had a wonderful rapport and a friendship. Um, but she didn't really go into like a lot of details about, you know, uh, things back then. She she was, you know, the one person who would be able to tell you that um, that Sinatra actually sang sharp slightly. And um, because uh, she was the one behind <laughs> behind the curtain with him. So uh, she told me a lot of musical things, and a lot of other funny stories with other band leaders and things that would happen at night. And uh you know, she uh, was in vaudeville with Red Skelton and, and people like that and the pranks that they would play. But um, that's about it. Uh, that, you know, I think this, the song and the career was so overwhelming and took over the entire radar of, of my mom's life. You know, she was asked to do a radio show for NBC in 1942 with her friend Sarah, uh, Sarah Lee, and she had a 15 minute live radio show on NBC. So I think her career was really first and foremost at that time. Um, Nancy Sinatra, who was kind enough to write the foreword for our book and to Smile Q, Nancy said, you know, um, my dad had such deep respect for Ruth. And to prove that, as, as Nancy said, how many people get to write a song for Frank Sinatra? Well, she got to write two songs. Yeah. By the way, they do all all again. But she was called upon to write his theme song, The Dreams Away. So that put Ruth Lowe in very august company. And the other thing, Dan, you're probably too polite to ask this, but Tommy's got a great response because somebody asked him not long ago, you know, Sinatra was known as a bit of a playboy. Did he enter a hit on your mom? And Tommy said, <laughs> Well, she was good looking and he was Frank Sinatra. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. And I do have blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, uh, Tom, you said you said something which is interesting about Sinatra. And I, I think and I've, I've read this and heard this about him that um, he, he didn't write music himself, but he had um, a great respect for the the best songwriters and the best arrangers. And, and I think that was because, and this is, you know, part of his, his greatness as a performer, um, that he knew that, that, that they would make him look better. He had the voice, but, but they yeah. had the music and they had the lyrics and they had the ability to arrange it. Because what, yeah. what is arranging if, well, if nothing more than, than shape it? You're shaping it to the, the talent of the singer. And um, so it doesn't surprise me uh, to hear that, when, boy, when he encountered the songwriter and this was a, yeah. a, a, going to be a mega hit or was a mega hit for him. Uh, Put your dreams away came a little bit later. Um, that uh, this was uh, this is not unusual for him. I think to to express that kind of, of interest. I want to go back to the song because uh, it's it's important uh, 
because there are so I, many. Go can ahead. I just, can I just add sure. something to what you just said? Because Sinatra, you're absolutely right about that. And what Sinatra did say about it was that uh, with an arranger like Tommy Dorsey and a song like I'll Never Smile Again, uh, a minor bird could have had a number one hit song. So yeah. he, you're right. He put himself, you know, uh, sort of in the background to the to the real art artist. But he was definitely one of them as well. Well, the, the flawless harmonies of I'll Never Smile Again, the chorus, um, complemented by his Sinatra's intonation, perfectly convey the sense of loss and, and all contribute to the recording uh, of this as, as a work of art. Um, in terms of expressing Ruth's sense of grief, I mean, that's, that's one side of it. But then this is now July of 1940. So in December of 1941, we enter World War II. And, and couples are separated and families are separated. And, and that, tell us about how, how that kind of gave the song, if you will, extra legs because it was so applicable to the moment. Uh, Peter. Well, um, in fact, there was a rumor going around that uh, number one, Ruth was American and number two, her flyboy had been killed seeing action in uh, the Second World War in Europe. But then, as you've correctly pointed out, Pearl Harbor wasn't until December 1941, uh, more than a year later, and Ruth was, in fact, Canadian. But um, sometimes the myth, uh, you know, doesn't get in the way of the truth, and it helped move the song along. But um, Ruth was also quite amazing. When you think about that, I think 90% of the you know, over 5,000 songs in the songbook were written by duels. Uh, Johnny Mercer and Harold Ireland, I mean, goes on and on and on. There were two people who were noted for doing both words and music, that being Irving Berlin and Cole Porter. Well, add Ruth Lowe to the group because she wrote the words and music. This huge hit, I'll never smile again. That's not bad company to be in. Living Berlin, pretty good. I, I would, I would say. Um, now, as you mentioned, Ruth wrote "Put Away Your Dreams," um, another huge Sinatra hit. Um, in fact, not only was his theme song, it, it was the closing song at his funeral service, actually, yeah. in, in 1998. What was her inspiration for that song? And why did it continue you know, to mean so much for Sinatra? This, you could have a hit and he had many hits, but Put Your Dreams Away appears on, on so many compilations, so many albums that he did, and he did, did many albums. What was the inspiration there and, and the meaning for him, do you think? I can tell you, and in fact, we have a chapter about this in the book, Until I Smile at You. It's quite amusing in that uh, Sinatra phones up Ruth one day and says, hey, doll, I need you to write me a song. She goes, well, what are you talking about, Frankie? And he goes, well, um, CBS is giving me my own radio show, and they want me to have a song. And you can practically see his chest welling up with pride. And he says, well, great. Uh, what do you got? I don't know. Uh, it's going to be at night, so maybe, uh, maybe we'll play at the end. And you know how you'd say sweet dreams? Maybe it's something about dreams. I don't know, Ruthie. You're really good at this. You'll come up with something. And she says, oh, well, okay, fine. give me a few days and I'll get back. 
And uh, then you ask about their inspiration. So Hakka says, a few days, no, I need this tomorrow. And she goes, what? And he says, yeah, we're going live tomorrow night. I need the theme song by then. Frank, I can't write a song in 24 hours. Oh, yes, you can. You told me you did that. With, uh, I'll never smile again. And she said, yeah, but I mean, that was totally different. And he goes, I got to run, Ruthie. I know you'll do it. And call me tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, when you say, what's her inspiration? I suppose anything else. She's sitting there saying the biggest talent in the world is going to have a radio show that will be listened to by millions of people. And I got to come up with a song. And what she did do was, uh, and again, this is a resilient, courageous, smart lady. She used her noodle. She got in touch with uh, two of her confreres from the Durable, Paul Mann and uh, Stefan Weiss. They were a songwriting. And by the way, I, uh, I met up with uh, Paul Mann's daughter, Lindy Kahn, uh, from Houston, Texas. And she filled me in on this well, but um, she phoned them up and said, you guys have a tune lying around. I've got some ideas for lyrics, but I don't have time to write a tune. And they said, well, yeah, actually, we've got a tune we've been playing with. So the three of them got together, pulled on all nighter, and the next day around noon, Ruth phones up Sinatra and the phone on the piano and says, okay, Frankie, we'll listen to this. And she sings and plays piano and plays on the wrist line. I'm sorry, I put your dreams away. She finishes, there's a pause, and she's going, oh my God, he hates it. And he suddenly goes, I love it, play it again. He, he fell in love with the song. So her inspiration was fear, but out of that came an amazing song. Actually, uh, Tommy likes that song better than uh, the other one. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Tom, which of the two, but now, see, Peter's answered it. Yeah. Which of the two do you like best? Well, you know, and I, I used to always torture my mom with that one because I, uh, Perch of Dreams Away, I love the me the melody was just so incredible. And it was a very optimistic song. It was so much different than I'll Never Smile Again. Um, and, and Peter's right about that whole story. And she wrote the lyrics for that where the guys wrote the, the melody for it. But she had the original lyrics that she had written without a melody uh, was the, the name of the song was um, put your dream, put your dreams away. Here comes Frankie. And, um, <laughs> so my mom was a romantic, really, and her music was all about romance and love and finding love and losing love. And this was a an optimistic chance that she was writing it for women or somebody who, you know, put your dreams away because your dreams are now have come true. Here's Frankie, you know, and uh, it was such a an opening for a new chapter of life. And that's what Sinatra was going through. And it just, again, you know, th there was magic there once again. Well, it's such a beautiful song. Um, so Tom, what happened after the war for, for Ruth? Um, did she continue to be involved in, in the world of music? Uh, uh, did she go on to pursue other gifts? And also, did she have a connection to, to Jewish life, to Jewish organizations? Well, uh, it, yes, she, 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 first of all, she always stayed in, in, involved with music and in touch with it. Um, she had her, like I mentioned before, she had a radio show with her friend Sarah Lee on NBC for uh, a couple of years in the early 40s. And um, around 1943, um, she, um, and it's funny about my mom because she met her first husband, Harold, on a blind date. 
in Chicago. And in 1943, she met another man who turns out to be my dad, was also on a blind date. <laughs> so uh, there's a theme going on there. There's a song in there somewhere. Uh -huh. uh, but she did, uh, she, she, you know, uh, I think she liked to have um, some security and stability in her life. And, and she really fell in love with my dad. He was an amazing guy, great guy, very protective guy. My mom liked these sort of tough guys that were real guys, you know, and um, it was a very Hollywood kind of couple, you know, um, my mom and dad. Uh, he was in the, into business. But... Um, my mom always uh, 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 was involved in music. She was out of the music scene when she moved to Toronto and got married. She got married in 1943 and started having a family in 1945. It's uh, my older brother. And I came along in 1950. And I think that she really was enjoying a, a different life, you know. Uh, and as most people were in those times after the war, and there was sort of all of a sudden, there was prosperity, there was hope, you know, in the, in, on the horizon. And I, I, she liked the idea of shifting gears to having a more of a steady, almost middle-class kind of life rather than being on the road and not knowing where your next meal was coming from. Um, she had a million friends. Uh, she was very charitable. She was in, very much involved. Uh, she had the Ruth chapter in the Hadassah Bazaar uh, with her best friend, Ruthie Himmel, and all the girls, you know, her friends. And uh, she did that for years and years. And um, both my parents very much involved in, 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 in charity organizations. My dad very much involved in B'nai B'rith and the United Jewish Appeal and um, uh, just endless stuff. Um, my dad was actually instrumental in, in getting the first Jewish doctor to be able to be hired. Uh, in Toronto, in a, in, a, in a Toronto hospital in the early 1950s, because they weren't hiring Jewish doctors, so my dad went out and actually raised a lot of money for research for the hospital. And they walked in there, and um, with a serious amount of money, <laughs> and they said, "Okay, tomorrow you're hiring the first Jewish doctor." And guess what? Tomorrow, <laughs> the next day, the first Jewish doctor was hired in Toronto. So, so it, it was wonderful that. Um, I have both my parents were very, very uh, sensitive to charities and very generous with their time. And, and, uh, and my mom also very much. Yes. Peter, what was the, the biggest challenge you had in, in writing the book? Because, you know, you have so many of the, the key players, if not all uh, at that moment had, had passed on. Um, so how do you, um, how do you gather that kind of information that, that you need uh, to tell the story? Well, Dan, uh, truthfully, the, the person, someone asked me not so long ago, anybody you want but I said, yeah, Ruth Lowe. Uh, I would love to have met Ruth Lowe. And uh, indeed, there were times when I was writing, when I felt this presence over my shoulder. And I think it was Ruth, because I'd be struggling with a fact or whatever. And I just felt this presence that um, she's open my shoulder. She likes what I'm doing. In fact, Tom uh, told me when, when we completed the manuscript, he, he said, I'm really happy with this. And he said, my mom would be thrilled. And she would be sending you a black Well, you can't see me. I'm wearing the black cardigan sweater right now because Ruth was a very generous, very kind lady. And if you ever did anything for her that was nice 
he would have sent to you a black sweater. So uh, I, I wear one anytime I do an interview. Uh, but the other challenge I guess I had um, was, I, I really wondered, and Dan, you've touched on this, when you think of music back in 1940, it was all up stuff, you know, Pennsylvania, six, five thousand, Tennessee, and on and on and on. And then along comes this almost dirge-like sad tune that races above all of them and goes to number one. How could that happen? And I didn't feel uh, equipped to be able to answer that. So I went to some uh, pretty noted authorities, people like Bernie Toppin, who has been uh, the lyric writer for Sir Elton John for 50 years now. Um, I talked to Sir Tim Rice, who writes lyrics for uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, Alan Bergman, who of course has written all sorts of uh, songs for uh, uh, Barbara Streisand and for Sinatra, and um, all, all sorts of people like that. And all of them were in awe of Ruth Lowe's talent. And they told me, Peter, it doesn't matter what's going on at times or what the competing songs are. If you have great talent like Ruth and you have a great song like I'm Gonna Smile Again, it will always rise to the top. Just to add something there that I think what it caused a, 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 a lot of closeness to, with people and a lot and, and intimacy. And I think that's what was different than the upbeat, jazzy, you know, upbeat kind of tunes and stuff like that. This really brought people right back down to earth again to feel something and to be human again and to maybe stop and take a breath in life. So it was very much like like at the eye of the storm of music, you know, and it was very powerful. But I think that the intimacy of that song was uh, very strong and very powerful. I, I meet people that told me that they had fallen in love uh, with their wife, you know, when they heard that song. And, you know, they've been married for 60 years and they're still married. And I do a little AV show and I do presentations and I see, I look out sometimes and once I looked out and I saw this couple holding hands across the aisle when they're sitting there watching me do my show and playing the music. So there's something very deep about that and powerful about that intimacy, about that music. Well, it's deep. It, it, go ahead, go ahead, Peter. Yeah. yeah back to your question for a minute about writing the book, uh, Tommy was great because he introduced me to a number of people who uh, were friends of Ruth in the second part of their life. And then, of course, the time I spent with his Aunt Mickey, uh, that was huge because she, um, she was, I think, around 95, 96 when I interviewed her. But she was, all the, all the uh, synapses were fired. She had a million memories. She was very articulate. And that really um, gave me the, the in-person story that, of course, I couldn't get from Ruth herself. So uh, between Mickey and then meeting a number of people and then my own research, um, I think we, we filled out the story very well. I should also mention, Dan, that in the book, Until I Smile at You, there are more than 50 uh, photographs never been seen before the memorabilia that Tom has that uh, fill out the book. So it's uh, quite something. And I mean, Tommy, you mentioned earlier about your mom appearing with Red Skelton. Well, there's a photo in the book of her. <laughs> and uh, she got around with a lot of celebrities and in fact was a celebrity. Well, I, in both songs uh, really are, 
are timeless, both of the of the, the big hits. And um, you know, Tom, as you're explaining, you know, when people hear it today, um, it, it evokes, I mean, these are, when, when you have a, a timeless piece of music, the date of, of its of its writing or the recording of its original hit really doesn't doesn't make a difference. Uh, it's 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 a mood uh, which is uh, which is timeless, which crosses uh, generations. And uh, well, she was uh, a fascinating woman and an important musical talent. And uh, really, we we salute uh, both of you uh, for for putting this together. Tom, we really appreciate your sharing. Uh, the important story of your mother, Ruth Lowe, a, a woman who, who persevered through unimaginable heartbreak uh, to become one of the most enduring musical talents of the 20th century. And Peter, we thank you for capturing Ruth's story so beautifully. Thanks to you both for, for joining me today. Well, then, for having us on. And believe me, it was my honor by Tom and his family to write the book. Absolutely, it's been it's been a great choice. Uh, Peter was the right guy to do it because of his respect for the music and the writers and his knowledge about it all. And you're right about that song being an eternal song. When Glenn Frey once said, "It's one thing to write music for your time, but it's a whole other thing to write music for all time." So that's what I think my mom did. Uh, well, that uh, that really encapsulated uh, encapsulates it. Uh, thanks again, both of you, uh, for joining me uh, today. Thank you, Dan. Our pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, if you're looking for more of our diverse content, visit our website, benebrit.org, uh, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. And thanks again to author Peter Jennings and Tom Sandler for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure you never miss an episode by tapping the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Talk to you again soon. Take care, everyone. Put your dreams away for another day And I will take their place in your heart